you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The lectionary will plunk us squarely in the book of Acts for the next little while, and I want to thank Willie James Jennings for his excellent commentary, which will be a major influence on my walk through Acts in the next little while. Acts is the story of revolution. It's a story told by a master storyteller about the disrupting presence of the Spirit of God. Listen to how Jennings describes it. The book of Acts is like the book of Genesis. It announces a beginning, but without the language of a beginning. Like Genesis, it renders without pomp and flag-waving a God working, moving, creating the dawn that will break each day, putting into place a holy repetition that speaks of the willingness of God to invade our every day and our every moment. This God of Israel waits no more for the perfect time to be revealed— Now is the time, and here is the place. God moves, and we respond. We move, and God responds. Cards are on the table, and the curtain is drawn back, and God acts plainly, clearly, and in ways that are irrevocable. There is no going back now. The book of Acts unfolds at a breakneck pace, and each chapter shows the early Christ followers learning just how inclusive their new community was going to be. Group after unexpected group receives the Holy Spirit and is added to their number. Saul learns that he has been wrong to persecute the Christ followers and joins them instead. Philip can see no reason not to baptize the eunuch from Ethiopia, and now it is Peter's turn. When Peter arrives in Jerusalem, the people have already heard about how Peter has recently broken a number of rules, and they have questions. Hey, Peter, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? So Peter has some explaining to do. They aren't asking if Gentiles can become followers of Jesus. They have already discovered that they can. But the question is, We've accepted the new reality in which Gentiles are to be welcomed into our community, but don't they also need to follow all of our Jewish customs as well? Aren't practices like circumcision and dietary laws important components of what it means to follow Christ? In N.T. Wright's translation of this passage, verse 2 says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who wanted to emphasize circumcision took issue with him. These men had a clear idea of what it took to be a follower of Christ, and circumcision was on the list. It was one of the key ways to determine who was in and who was out. Every group has a list like this. So I was sitting at the table waiting for everyone to arrive when this volunteer approached me. Her expression was deadly serious as she leaned towards me, gesturing with her finger for me to lean in so she could whisper. You know, she said in hushed tones, some Anglicans are actually Christians. (laughs) The Alpha Course, which was designed as a sort of Christianity 101 and became very popular in evangelical circles in the 90s, was created by an Anglican. And this detail made a lot of evangelical people scratch their heads. It directly challenged some of the basic things they had always believed about so-called mainline churches. 
used to sizing people up, people and organizations up to determine if they were in or they were out, they couldn't argue with the fact that Nicky Gumbel believed all the right things and that the course he created seemed to be working. It made no sense. But their experience participating in the Alpha course made it impossible for them to continue to believe that Anglicans couldn't be Christians. It may not have been the most important or powerful moment in the ecumenical movement, but the Alpha Course did successfully convert many evangelicals into this new way of thinking. Some Anglicans were, in fact, Christians. And to be perfectly fair, I could tell a number of very similar stories about Anglicans as well. What does it take to belong? In some communities, the litmus test for inclusion might be skin color, your views on abortion, or whether or not you're going to be watching Game of Thrones after church tonight. It's always something. But God gives Peter a vision of inclusion. It's a vision of hospitality and welcome in which God says unequivocally that everyone is welcome into the family, as they are. Circumcision and purity codes no longer apply. God says that everything has been made clean. And who can argue with God? Well, Peter can. It took Peter, the direct recipient of the vision, three times to get the hint. It took the people hearing Peter's account of the vision significantly less time, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Peter arrives in Jerusalem, and he has some explaining to do. First, for accepting Cornelius' hospitality, and second, for baptizing Cornelius and his household, and thereby inviting them into full membership in the community without first having to become Jews. Does Peter dazzle them with rhetoric or complex theological ideas? No. He tells them a story, a very detailed story of exactly what happened to him in Joppa. Now, if you were reading along in Acts, you'd know that this is the second time we get the details of Peter's vision. And you might think, hey, I just read this in the last chapter. Luke should have gotten a better editor, which would have cut out some of this unnecessary material. But the repetition is not an accident. It indicates the importance of Peter's experience not only for Peter, but for the entire community. In Joppa, God subverted Peter's expectations, and now, through the retelling, God will subvert the community's expectations as well. Peter's dream must be told in detail so the hearers can begin to see their lives in it. God spoke to Peter, and now, through Peter, God is speaking to the saints gathered to hear. The power of God is present in weakness, in the voice of one disciple of Jesus who simply tells the truth of what has happened to him and what God did through him. Then, as now, there are few things more powerful than the story of a personal experience. And so Peter begins to tell them about his vision in great detail. He was praying in Joppa and had a vision of a large sheet coming down from heaven, The sheet is filled with all sorts of animals, and a voice from heaven tells him to kill and eat them. Now, Peter refuses because some of these animals were considered unclean, and he has always honored Jewish dietary laws. But the heavenly voice responds, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This process happens three times. Is this a callback to other series of threes in Peter's life? The denial? Jesus' questions on the beach? Is it simply a sign of Peter's stubborn refusal to believe? 
Whatever the significance, the sheet is lowered and pulled back up to heaven three times. And after the final time, three men from Caesarea appear in its place. And the Spirit tells Peter he is to go with them and also not to make a distinction between them and us. The men have also had a vision in which they were told to find Peter and listen to the message of salvation he would share with them. Peter begins to speak, but before he can finish, the Holy Spirit falls upon the men and Peter recognizes this as the fulfillment of the promise that John would baptize with water, but they would baptize with the Holy Spirit. As Peter is conveying this story, he makes sure to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit throughout in order to make it clear that although his behavior has been unconventional, he really had no choice but to conclude that Gentile believers needed to be welcomed into the fold as they were. I imagine him getting to the final line of his story and throwing up his hands and shrugging his shoulders as he concludes, If then God gave them the same gift that God gives us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ— who was I to hinder God? Or, if you want to take an uh, issue with my actions, then take it up with God, not me. With the benefit of historical hindsight, it's easy for me to place myself on Peter's side, to put myself by his side before the story even began, actually, and to write off the men who want to emphasize circumcision as ignorant fools. How on earth could they possibly be so ignorant, so naive, so self-righteously exclusionary as to think that circumcision mattered to God. I mean, keep up, folks. God is making all things new. But recently, I was talking to a friend who was passionately discussing the importance of reclaiming her indigenous heritage. She wants to learn her language and participate in ceremonies. But one of the horrible legacies of residential schools is that she did not learn these things as a child, and there are very few elders who can teach her now. She feels adrift without the language and practices that should anchor her identity. She grieves all the things that have already been lost and worries about the challenge of saving the things that remain. She wants to participate in the dominant culture, but she does not want to be assimilated into it. Now, the circumstances are different, but I suspect this is part of what the men who want to emphasize circumcision are worried about. The Jewish people were a minority group, and their practices were an essential component of their cultural identity. Their religious beliefs and practices kept them from being assimilated into the dominant culture. Without the practices that helped to form and strengthen their identity as children of God, what will happen to them? Will they lose their culture? a culture that's been given to them by God and that has sustained them for generations? Those are valid concerns. The people who favored circumcision were asking these questions from a sincere desire to know what was the right thing to do. They had open ears and soft hearts, softer, it seems, than even Peter's, because they know exactly what to do after hearing the story secondhand only one time. Peter finishes his story, and the people fall silent, a silence that is broken not by critical words, but by praise. Luke tells us, and they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This silence is a break in space and time and sound that God has orchestrated, this break does not silence Israel's past, but it's a break in the musical sense. 
in the sense of jazz improvisation. And Wynton Marcellus explains that in the break, the band stops playing and leaves space for the soloist to play. In the break, the soloist is alone for a moment, carrying the time, suspended in air, and holding everything together in a single performance. It's the pressure-packed moment because you have to maintain the time flow of the whole band by yourself. Our time becomes your time, yours and yours alone. Peter brings them to the break, but the Spirit of God carries the time, holding it in the silence. The moment of silence after Peter's testimony reveals a God who has been keeping time beautifully and faithfully with Israel and now expects the hearers to feel the beat, remember the rhythm, and know the time. After the silence, God's love has modulated into a new key, but the rhythm and song of Israel continue. The beat goes on. Peter tells his story. The people listen. They spend time in silence and then... Recognizing the truth of what Peter has said, they adjust their thinking and praise God. And their behavior is worthy of emulation. When I watch the news, it seems to me that more and more we're dividing into camps, building walls and throwing stones over the top. We aren't listening to other people's stories. Could we emulate these early Christians who listen to Peter's story, fall silent, and change their minds? Could we learn to sing a new song of praise and invite others to sing it too, just as they are? May it be so. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.